Hit the lights. You've discovered the Half Watt Podcast. We want to educate and entertain by tapping into the most trusted source of new technology, the ones installing and innovating it. You, the tradespeople that build from the ground up. Join us as we talk with industry leaders, veteran contractors, and even some young blood. Really appreciate the advice you gave me yesterday on the amps. No Um, problem. I'm glad you uh, asked, actually, because that's my world right there. I love that stuff. That's my hobby. Right. I haven't been able to snowboard in years, so I'm just like, why don't I just get back into playing music? Yeah, music for me is such an outlet, and uh, been, you know, we're we're semi-pro right because we get paid we get to play out but we all have professional jobs we're all dads we're all married you know we have our hands full so uh we're lucky our wives even let us do it but we get to be rock stars every now and then right so fun right yeah all right well thank you for listening to the half watt podcast i'm gage and joining us today is michael brown the ops manager of the enterprise side of our office. Install manager, yep. Oh, install manager. Yeah, we're actually looking for an ops manager right oh. now. In fact, we just made an offer to somebody okay. that should all work out hopefully, and they'll probably come in as a senior project manager and okay. work their way into an ops manager role. Right on, right on. So yep. we'll we're, we'll clip the first three minutes of this and, and put it up on the LinkedIn, help them out a little bit. I'm just kidding. No, I hope, yeah. that, <laughs> hope that works out. I do too. So... Thanks for coming on. Thank you. Really excited to have you. You have an incredible amount of experience. Uh, I think, you, like you said, you've worked on Getting access. <laughs> <laughs> Spring chicken. But uh, I think you said you've worked on systems in yeah. over 25, maybe even over 30 countries. 30 countries, yeah. Wow. Yeah, it was fun. So uh, I guess just to get started. Sure. How did you get into the business? That's a great question because uh, it w- I was at a crossroads and I chose the right road. Um, I was al- always been in electronics in some form. I in the early 1990s, like let's say 93, 94, I I was really lucky to always be on the analog to digital conversions that were taking place. Okay. Uh, I was in to sell cell phones and and when cell phones were going from analog to digital. I got a job working for Pacific Bell Wireless in Southern California okay. at a place called the LA Rock in Los Angeles, and it was right outside Compton. <laughs> and uh, I was hired to, um, so I was a cable guy actually, so okay. I was working for Comcast and I was working down in Newport Beach and I was doing a job oh. in this really decent house in Newport and the guy says, hey, uh, you looking for work? I said, yeah. He goes. Uh, I've got an opportunity for you if you're interested. I said, sure, what are you doing? You know, and he told me, uh, I run uh, a service center for, I work for Pacific Bell Wireless and okay. we're building a service center and I need somebody with a technical background to help run it. And I was just like, really? Shit, I'll try it, you know? Yeah, well, I, I So I bought a nice suit, uh-huh. like the, seriously spent the money on the suit and I went in and had pre-formal interview, went to another interview, a third interview, three interviews deep and uh, got the job. And uh, first thing we did was um, I had to get trained in Motorola and Ericsson and right. uh, Nokia at the time. And uh, I had an electronics background already. So in RF design and engineering, I uh, wasn't an engineer, but I had background in RF. So it wasn't that different for me. I could right. understand pretty quickly. But um, circuit board repair and stuff like that, I had to get into that a little bit more. And what was cool about it was... Uh, 
we went through and tried to get there was like level one level two level three trainings and stuff and uh, pacific bell wireless had a lot of pull at the time and this was right when analog to digital was taking place in 95 96 and so what was happening though is analog the way analog cell phones worked was it you got static or you you didn't have dropouts it wasn't digital so it wasn't and okay. and so the when people first started using cell phones that were digital, in this case the GSM uh, protocol, which was what Pacific Bell Wireless was using, um, which is different than CDMA, which Verizon and people were using, but GSM um, was so what, what's what's a CDMA? CDMA. So GSM is 1.9 gigahertz, or okay. I'm sorry, one point. And it's 1.3 to 1.6, I think, is the range that they mm-hmm. operate in. It's also, you know, the SIM card. GSM yeah. originated with the SIM card. It was okay. the first. It was in Europe. It was the military protocol in Europe. And mm-hmm. then in the States, they brought it to the States okay. and created a cell phone technology out of it. But it was a digital uh, communication platform that was encrypted. And the nice thing about huh. it was that you put everything on your SIM card, so your contacts yeah. and all your contact input was on your SIM, so when your oh, phone died, okay. you just moved SIMs, right? Nice, okay. Whereas yeah, Motorola and Nokia and other that were non-GSM are not the manufacturers. Right. But the technologies like CDMA, which again, mm-hmm. is just another wireless technology. I forget the frequency they worked at, but I used to know all the stuff off the top of my head. But, <laughs> so, um, but uh, they didn't have SIM cards. So when okay. your phone died, you know, you had, it was a big, uh, situation to transfer oh. everything over, right? So, so Pacific Wireless had a an edge on the market, at least yeah. from that perspective. It was also expensive, but um, so this is the beginning, though, right. you know. And right. this is LA, and LA um, they didn't have enough cell sites right back then. And so the reason that I got hired was so I got hired at the LA Rock, which stood for Los Angeles Regional Operations Center. Okay. And it was this new facility, and inside the facility, since it was a it was a logistics center, we we're shipping phones out and bringing phones in. Right. Uh, we're shipping them from you know San Francisco, Northern California, Nevada, and then Southern California. Um, we'd ship phones out to the retail stores. They would sell them to people. People would get pissed because they didn't work. They would return <laughs> them. They would come through our department. Right. So what we were doing at the time was they were they're outsourcing all their repairs to a company called Wireless Service Center in Santa Barbara. Okay. And a WSC was what they were called, and so they bunch came of out of kids working on. No, them. these guys are military dudes. Oh, okay. And so they came out of um, they were analog though, and so they were converting to servicing digital phones. Okay. But the f- equipment you use to simulate a cell phone call. Uh, which is how you would begin testing phones. You'd bring them in and you'd simulate the calls, and so it would broadcast it out and receive and do right. all this stuff and put it through all its paces and handoffs and stuff like that from one site to another. You would do all this really cool stuff, and but the equipment was super expensive. And so, and and battery charging, all the battery repairs and the, just all that, the environmental aspects of it was expensive. So long story short, they... Uh, sent me to the wireless service center when I first got hired to meet their vendor, you know, the person that was doing all the repairs, but really it was a recon mission. And wireless service center, I think, knew it. So it was so cool. It was like my first or second month on the job and that we were going to do this recon because basically we're going to do that in-house. And so my boss kind of pulled me aside and goes, I want you to learn everything and I want to build that in-house. And I said, okay, cool. They come down, they pick us up in a limo, drive us from (laughs) L.A. to Santa Barbara. Okay. 
we get out, we do this whole thing. They take us to lunch. They want to keep our business. We're feeding them a ton of business. But, oh, yeah. And then they we tour their facility. But their one guy was pretty smart. I think he knew what we were doing. So he was really apprehensive to show us. And I kept probing. And, hey, can I see your, how you handle your batteries? Let me see your batteries. You mm-hmm. know, How you handle this? How you handle that? And uh, so long story short, we kind of just took their ideas. And then I went to... Florida and trained with Nokia and Nokia we they had this massive massive facility that took in phones and basically repaired them oh I bet and they kicked them back out right and so and this was before cell phone insurance in fact this was right before cell phone insurance kicked in this was actually how cell phone insurance became what it is today you know how when your phone dies and you have cell phone insurance they just boom ship you a new one so those are usually refurb phones going through this whole horseshoe process anyways they uh so it was kind of cool. I was in this, you know, analog to digital conversion there, but the problem was there was not enough cell sites. So mm. 90% of the phones that I had coming in were all good. I would say 98% of them wow. were good. It's just there wasn't enough cell sites. Right. Yeah. And so that commercial, can you hear me now? Can you hear me yeah. now by Verizon? <laughs> is because of that. That's mm-hmm. so funny. So I was always battling with our BTS department, which is our network ops team, because I would be, hey, when are you going to get cell sites over at La Cienega and, you know, from Beverly Hills and this area, right. you know, where all the phones were selling. And, uh, and man, I got stationed at the Beverly Hills store because they were having so many returns. Wow. And there was a firmware issue, and I had a flash firmware on all these phones. So these people were coming in, lining up outside, and they, their cell phone would come in, and I'd flash their phone and do this. Right. And, man, they were throwing their phones at the windows. They were so <laughs> pissed. I'm, I'm talking like... You know, there's uh, there's Burt Reynolds assistant people. No, I'm like (laughs) legit people. Like, I had a guy come in actually one day. This is really a trip because our GSM was actually uh, the most secure protocol, and so a lot of people who were you know into stuff where they didn't want people listening in on their phone calls were using GSM. And I had a guy one time came in that Beverly Hills store. He came in all frantic, and he had this white shirt on, these black slacks, and he was he had like a little mini like a. Uh, suitcase or a uh, briefcase type thing on a cart and he came in and he goes hey, this needs to work this needs to work it's not working if they don't if I don't answer my phone they're gonna kill me I'm like oh my gosh man whoa she's have you ever heard of stem cells this is 96 right and I go uh, no I have no idea did you know you know how a uh, what did he say he goes do you know how a lizard can regrow its tail we can do that with human limbs and I'm a, one of the chief scientists and Bobby. The guy started singing like a canary at the front desk, right? And I'm just listening to this guy going, whoa, this guy's a whack job, you right. know? But this I, is also very cool. I <laughs> had no idea. You know, it wasn't until like 2000, 2006 <clears throat> that right. stem cells became like a big thing, right? Back then, I had no idea. I think I was just full of shit. Anyways, uh, he needed his phone because whoever he was working with, you know, scientifically, you know, yeah. on his work, he was no, like CIA. people were coming after him. <laughs> He was freaked out. And then the, there was a, wow. an old song by a, an artist, this gal, she sings, I just can't remember her name. Uh, you say, da-da-da-da-da. There's some song, I don't know if you remember hearing that. But she came in one day. She was all nice, really? you know, this artist she uh-huh. plays. She came in, I'll never forget. She comes in through the door. She's got a Victoria's Secrets bag. She puts it on the table. She has her phone, she slams it on the table, and she's like, I have this phone, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and I was just like, okay. And I tried to work with her on it mm-hmm. and stuff like that. I'm like, hey, wait, aren't you that artist? And she goes, oh, yeah. And I'm like, you're so nice on your music video and everything else. Right. You're not nice right now. But, yeah, so people that were pissed off in Beverly Hills were, you know, people that were pretty well, you know, that, that whole <clears throat> right. group. 
So anyways, I did, that was pretty neat, watching that analog to digital conversion. Well, as I'm a cell phone tech, or running this, you know, service center essentially, uh, which we basically this cool horseshoe thing. So we we graded the phones by cosmetic as they came in, and if it was a good cosmetic, it was an A. It went through this horseshoe where we would pre-test the phone, put it through a cell site simulation. Right. Does it even work? From there, um, if it had errors, then we would classify it differently, and then it would go to one of my level two, level three guys. Um, if it was a kind of like bad LCD screen, bad keypad, flip phones all broke all the time, you know, that kind of stuff. Then right. we had components, we would repair those. And so I learned some really cool sweep solder techniques. We could okay. do real component level, like micro component level repairs. That's pretty sweet. It was pretty neat. I learned so much cool stuff in that. And uh, anyways, we repair the phone, kick it out. The last part of that horseshoe was a final test, uh, QC, and then it went out back to the person uh, or to the retail store for a, a refurb. And we had that going. We were like processing ninety thousand phones uh, a month, dude. It was brutal. Whoa. Yeah, and and then we I would take all these crazy trade ins. We'd sell them to Cuba. We'd sell them to all these countries that used uh, GSM or some of these. I don't know if Cuba was one of them, but uh, Guatemala maybe. But we were selling them. South America was getting them, I think, because they had GSM <clears throat> towers. Right. And uh, so, anyways, we were we were kind of bringing stuff in and stuff we couldn't bring to retail. We were selling. I was brokering deals. It was pretty neat. Huh. Uh, so I did that until uh, Pacific Bell Wireless sold to um, Sprint. No, Singular was what it was called. Then right, and then Sprint bought mm, Singular. Yeah, and then I think AT and T or something happened. So they just kept selling. Pacific right. Bell Wireless sold and. I always wanted to work on the cell sites, though, so I got a job as a cell site tech for a little while. Okay. Yeah, and that was really cool. Uh, that was a union, like Local 11 or something like that. Okay. And, uh, wow. So they had a, a pretty, you know, L.A. was pretty big, and there's a lot of people, a lot of, they were building cell sites like crazy at the time. Right. So that was good work. Um, so uh, cell sites are crazy. They had 480 volts coming in, and then they had all these radio cards, and then they had the tower, and then they had the transceivers up top, and then those things were feeding via coax, like 750 mil coax down into these feeders, and they were coming up and out. It was pretty cool. Were they disguising them as trees back then? or uh, No, that that when I remember <laughs> the first time I ever saw one disguised as a tree, and I thought to myself, that is awesome. Uh, but Halloween no, not yet. <laughs> but people were making bank, uh, selling plots of their land, or, and okay. you know, like yeah. you were selling. Basically, a lot of guys, uh, a friend of mine, got into real estate working for their cell phone companies, selling. You know, basically finding the the because you would you know, sell cell right of the cell site covered yeah. a certain area, and you would have overlapping cells, and then uh, the if the overlap was pretty like you know wasn't overlapping a lot then mm -hmm. as phones drove and you're on the freeway or something you would start to break up and then boom the other cell site would catch you and then oh i can i got you now you know right and you said it would be staticky instead of no like, it would be dropout oh they were dropout, dropout. Mm -hmm. the other one was static, static. yeah gotcha. analog was people were used to analog problems right you would you know but whereas uh digital was just out you know right and they were pissed by they yeah. like when they, because there weren't that many cell sites and they were selling phones like crazy yeah. And in fact, I remember radio station KLOS in uh, Southern California doing some big skit about it. You know, I was like, this is like digital sucks and all this. Uh, so anyways, we did that for a little while. And then um, after they sold, uh, what did I do after that? I went to a company called HyperEdge, which was doing DSL routers. So we were competing with Cisco and um, 
uh, what was the name of it? Lucent Technologies. And this was when, so what was happening, like when I was a cable guy, I was going from analog cable boxes to digital cable boxes. Right. And uh, I was really lucky to be part of the first digital box, cable box deployment in Buena Park. The, the first time they deployed those menu-based digital, which is, you know, back in the day, it was just a black box and you had channels. Right. And then we went to a menu, kind of like DirecTV type thing, where it was this big box and we brought it in and we had to get downloads to it and train the people how to use, you know, the menus and everything. So, um, so you had to download the channels onto the box. Yeah, you sat there in front of the person That's for like so an hour, funny. you know. Yeah. But then cable modems were coming out. So okay. we were doing, like we'd show up, do a digital cable box and a cable modem for the sites, the network that could support it. And not the network hadn't been built out yet. Buena Park was one of the first sites that had it. And I happened to be chosen to be, I was an installer that got, got to be part of that team. And that was a really fun team. In fact, our boss, uh, the leader of our team was a really cool guy. Um, he was in the first Persian Gulf War. So this was 94, maybe 95. So he had just come out of that war. It was 92, right. I think. And uh, his name was Richard Barr, but he went by Dick. So he came up, he came up to me and he goes, hey, uh, Michael. I said, yeah, Dick Barr. Nice to meet you. I said, <laughs> really? And he goes, yeah, that's cool, man. So he was my boss. Really? <laughs> And uh, we were, he taught me so much. He was so cool. So, so that was the analog to digital conversion in cable TV land. And uh, then I went to cell phones, which went for analog to digital and cell phones. And then I went from there to security, which was at this point, by the time I got into security after doing the, again, to compete with cable modems at the time, there was DSL, right? I don't right. Know if you remember DSL. Yeah. So I for do. rural areas where, you know, you didn't have the cable TV, didn't have cable modems yet, you were doing DSL because they had phone lines. Right. And so DSL was kind of really trying hard to take up as much market as it could before cable TV came in, but cable TV had higher bandwidth. Right. So right. Uh, we had these really cool, the, the matrix switchers we used where it would go in these things called D-slams and it was this big box, 19 inch, you know, four U or bigger six U unit that we would stuff into a rack. All these truck lines would come in, patch down on the back. And then each card had a bank of like probably 40, 50 relays. So if you've oh, wow. seen a Linnell 1200 board, yeah, you know, it's an output board. Yeah. Well, all those relays, they finger a big old car that looked like a big Linnell 1200 board. And they're just all these slots, and, and they went in, and then basically it would just multi-switch everything. Right. Almost like the old elevator panels, too. Totally, yeah. That's what it reminded me of. And I got to, when I worked at, it was Quantum Link, it turned into HyperEdge because they got bought out. This is when technology and the whole um, breakdown of the uh, business telephone systems, which uh, they deregulated a bunch of stuff, and then it became like a free-for-all in the telephone business telephone world. And at that time, when I was in that whole um, arena of, uh, you know, I came out of a cable guy and then I was a cell phone guy and now I'm working on, on matrix switchers for DSL companies. Uh, so these, let's say you wanted to open up a DSL company out here where right. we're at and you would use us and use our equipment or you use Lucent or you would lose, use Cisco or okay. whoever else. And then, you know, but we would obviously want you to buy ours and yeah. how do we compete? Um, so anyways, it was hard to compete with Lucent and those other companies, but, um, yeah, Cisco guy, was really small company, probably easy to compete with. <laughs> yeah. Lucent was bigger at the time. Really? Yeah. That's um, interesting. They were the ones to beat. Uh, and so what was interesting was 
during uh, that period of time I was working with, uh, so Quantum Link was always trying to improve. So the guy that ran Quantum Link was a, a guy that worked for Nortel. At the time. He was like Nortel's top sales guy. And uh, so he had somehow made it rich. And this was in San Pedro. And I remember our office looked over, you know, he had a sailboat in the harbor. And, you know, the guy was gnarly. And, um, he, you know, uh, but he had hired all these, like, um, top uh, uh, engineers to design, you know, this thing. And there, he had this top engineer and then these hired guys. Some of these guys were, you know, NASA. And some of these guys were writing the code, were put on the chips, machine wow. language. And uh, they were like contractors, but I got to like watch them write the code, and then I got to where I was a gopher basically. And I, if we got a hold of a Lucent box one time, our competitor's box, and and I had to disassemble it like you would, just complete surgery, put everything in on uh, this huge area, and then the guys all dissected it, and they're like this, and that was the day they kind of realized they got right. their asses kicked because they yeah. were better. I'm like, whoa. Anyways, reverse like, engineering. Yeah, we did a big reverse. It was for real. And um, <laughs> and then I used to, he wrote his own software program to test everything, QC it and stuff. He was really neat. And so I got to work wow. with some really cool guys um, over there. Um, that was when Matrix the movie came out. And okay. I remember I was sitting at this long, really cool office with this long table with all these engineer guys. And I was just this, you know, 23, 24 maybe in, in the back. And uh, these dudes are all gnarly and they're all talking and I was like wow this is so neat and then um, all of a sudden they all started talking about the Matrix and at the time I was so cutting edge you know yeah. now when I watch the Matrix I'm like wow <laughs> so, <laughs> looks but like a back then yeah you're just, uh, but I remember just oh my god the Matrix it's so real what if we're in a Matrix you know these guys right. are all pretty gnarly <laughs> So I just remember sitting back going, wow, I'm going to go home. You know, I can't wait to see The Matrix, you know, on right. VHS. Um, uh, I wonder if Blockbuster Video has it. But uh, so R. after, R. yeah. Um, so after, so I was kind of just lucky. I had all these lucky moments in my life where I got to work with really neat people. So after the Bell Lab or the uh, Quantum Link, I guess it was, got bought out by HyperEdge, we went to... Uh, I took some time off um, and uh, maybe, I don't know, six months, and then I, I got a job uh, working on plotters. Okay. A friend of mine turned me on to this uh, company called Steven Enterprises, and they're based out of like, uh, Lake Forest in Southern California. And um, I interviewed there, and the, in my interview, the guy had a plotter that needed to be put together and set up, and he goes, all right, you put that pl plotter together and we'll determine whether or not, you know, so basically, I put the plotter together. He had me do it for free in okay. my interview, right? So <laughs> I saved him the time of having to do it because he was one of the techs. And he goes, oh, you did a good job. And and so we'll get back to you. And so uh -oh. <laughs> did another interview, right. and uh, they offered me the job. And then uh, so basically what I did was I drove all around, used to fix blueprint machines that were still around, alcohol-based blueprint machines. Okay. And then uh, wide-format engineering uh, copiers and printers, and then – uh, wide format scanners and uh, obviously the plotters like we have at our office and everything and um, so uh, that was fun because that was electromechanical like the scanners all had high res digital IP cameras in oh, them wow. that were scanning the document that was being fed through and then it was feeding it to a computer and then there was a print server and there was all kinds of you know, all the networking of it, the print server uh, setting up the printer drivers for the big companies you know we're talking Oakley, we're talking big companies where they needed, uh, 
you know, they were doing design and, and um, I would go to these really big offices and they'd buy these plotters and then we would I'd take them off this big truck and assemble them and then park them and then network huh. them and get them all set up, set the right. print servers up, work with all the CAD people and get the drivers right and do all this stuff. And it was intense. I was going to um, say that sounds it was crazy. Really intensive. It was. Um, but man, it was so fun because it was, like I said, electromechanical. So you had servers, you had obviously working with IT guys to get everything. You got to get IP addresses, right. you got to put drivers, install the drivers, got to configure the drivers. But what was cool was uh, the mechanics of it, right? So you had gears and pulleys and belts and feeders and rollers. And, and then on the old engineering copiers, you had um, thermistors and all these heating elements and these gnarly, you know, uh, right. cartridges. Because they were alcohol-based. Well, the blueprints were alcohol-based, and okay. those had chains, a big feeder. That, that was like a like a motorcycle. It was like just motorcycle motoromas <laughs> with this big chain. It would feed the drawing through, and then you had the alcohol. It would... The, you know, bleach that. You like it? We put Vance and Hines on the printer. <laughs> yeah. It was pretty cool, though. I like the blueprint machines, but they were not fun to work on because they smelt. And oh, okay. uh, engineering copiers were not fun to work on because you get the toner everywhere. And that stuff oh. was a mess. And then the plotters suck because you get ink everywhere. And, right. Uh, and um, so it was, it was definitely, I touched a lot of chemicals I shouldn't have touched. Uh, you know, nowadays I kind of <clears> regret <throat> not wearing gloves. Right. But, um, so that was, uh, again, going from blueprint, you know, copiers and to high tech digital plotters, you know, that were going in. So I was in this transition there, too. So, the, again, this is, you know, at this point, this is maybe 2000 and um, uh, geez, I guess I got married in 2001. So this would have been like 2000, 2001, 99. Okay. Um, and then, so I was there like three or four years, maybe longer. Um, but as I was fixing a plotter one day, um, or one of our engineering <laughs> coppers, this Just guy. Your whole life is like a country song. <laughs> dude, so what's crazy is that they, I'm working for a company called Security Solutions, who's just like uh, us at the time, you right. know, uh, who has a big plotter. They're printing out security drawings and, you know, schematics and everything we use today. And their plotter was down and it had to be rebuilt. And it's back when we had Windows XP. Okay. And uh, so I had to go rebuild their server. So I had all the parts out and then I had to fix their plotter and their, uh, the owner come by and he goes, oh, you're pretty good with this stuff. Uh, you ever get into security? And I go, uh, what do you mean? Uh, you want to be, uh, or he goes, I have an opportunity for a programmer. And I'm thinking like the programmers I know were programming, you know, C, C++ or right. other languages. And I'm thinking I'm not a programmer. And I'm like, oh, I don't know if programming's my thing. Uh, and uh, he goes, uh, well, we have, and he kind of walked me around the facility, and he introduced me to Linnell, and I, he had this big board with wow. all this Linnell hardware, and I was like, ooh, this is cool, and then he kind of gave me a high level what it did, and then at that point, um, so now actually, this is probably more like 2005, 2006, and uh, so I said to the guy, um, yeah, because I must have worked at Steven Enterprise for a while, but um, I said, to I said to him, well, yeah, I'm really interested in this. And he goes, well, here, why don't you come in for an interview? So I did all the interviewing and stuff. And I got a job from a different repro graphics company to make more money. And then I got a, an offer by this guy to make more money in an industry I'd known nothing about. So in this industry, I've been in it six years, maybe. Right. Had established myself. It was good money. I could have gone there like one of the top companies. And, uh, and then I had this offer to go into security as a programmer. I had no idea any other thing about it. And right. I just I just remember the guy telling me, <laughs> you know, this is, you know, great industry, you know, blah, blah, blah. And 
So I just, you know, I went for something that I knew really well. And I just said, went for this total, you know, fork in the road moment where I just went down to the security alley and that wow. was 2006. And so I've been in the industry ever since then as a, as a, you know, we I got hired as a programmer, they called us to, back then. And then I was there about a year and a half. Uh, Good thing you did, by the way. Man, it's crazy. And and so I moved, I went to Selectron a year after working with that guy. So I okay. moved uh, out of Cal Southern, my son was <clears> born. I would never be able to afford Southern California at that time. Right. I was living in Huntington Beach. There was no way in hell, you know. It's like seven hundred thousand dollars for a, a fifteen hundred square foot house, and that was cheap. So I'm <laughs> thinking to myself, man, I you know I keep looking. Uh, if I have my young son is you know six months old, right? Man, what kind of life are we just going to be living in apartments forever? What's what's the deal? And and uh, one of the cool things when I was with this company, they're based out of Los Alamitos, California, and we had some good accounts. One of them was Staples Center. Oh, wow. That was pretty cool. And uh, we had uh, other accounts, but uh, some high-rises in downtown L.A., uh, a crazy elevator controls, a really interesting problem. One time I went to a service call in a downtown, uh, an issue where back in the, you know, the CRT monitors, right? Right. So this guy had, um, we went out to troubleshoot a really tough issue uh, on a Linnell system that um, nobody could figure out. We had been there multiple times. We would get these ghost reads, and uh, they couldn't figure it out. And you know, noise was mm -hmm. what we kind of suspected. And the head end was in this room mm -hmm. right next to the elevator shaft. And we walk into the room, and there's the computer that Linnell was running on, which had an old CRT monitor. And the elevator would go by, and the whole monitor would go woo, <laughs> and we're like, oh, and then it come by again, woo, and he goes, oh yeah, that does that, and we're just like, huh. And we're here to troubleshoot noise. So then we're like, if it's doing that, I wonder what it's doing to the Linnell head end that's right next to it. Right. And uh, so we started kind of keeping track of what was going on and monitor it for a while. But for some reasons, uh, when the elevator would go by, it would duplicate like a card read. Interesting. Yeah. So I that think was the a frequency of it going So we moved the something. head end mm -hmm. and uh, it didn't happen. So it was weird. Wow. Yeah. Um, but that was just so cool that, you know, feeling that just the timing was perfect. That's so weird. So I we, don't got to love that, the timing. Yeah. Uh, and so I I was doing a job for a credit union, and I, got, I was doing a Bioscript reader. This is, again, 2006, and Bioscript readers were new and uh, relatively new. And we were doing stuff. We were doing fingerprinting for the FBI for the these this bank for whatever reason they had to do. And I had this point of contact. It was an FBI lady. And so anyways, I was working with her. I was like, this is cool, right? But we were doing this crazy integration behind the scenes. And uh, I, I just trained in Linnell, you know, for hardware and video. So we were kind of getting into like that professional services level yeah. stuff. And so the guy that was the, our Linnell rep, you know, the engineer, sales engineer guy was Trevor Newton. And so Trevor Newton had worked with Selectron with uh, Steve and all the team members that we know, you know, from the early days. And uh, Trevor was one of their programmers, right? And, okay. And he was a top dude, really smart. But he went to go to work with Linnell and moved from Oregon to Southern California. He was actually <laughs> still living in Oregon at the time. And this job was happened to be in San Diego. So we were doing uh, – he came down as like kind of the assist in the whole deployment and stuff, and I got to talking to him. And we, I remember being in the elevator with him, and I remember saying, um, what's Oregon like? And he goes, oh, it's great. I'm like, yeah, I'm kind of – 
looking to move and do you know anybody who's hiring up there and he goes i do and he gave me robert flynn's <laughs> card oh wow yeah okay. and then i remember i was doing a huge job for the water district in santa Ana. we were doing all these wireless cameras these kobe cameras at the time kobe was this really cool camera that could do like aged video it could store video on the camera and anyways we had all these point to points everywhere and it was a water district you know so water plants you know those those things and skater systems and stuff so it was pretty cool uh, I was finishing that big project up, and I remember um, I was at lunch, and I called Robert Flynn to see um, <clears throat> if you know if we can set up an interview. And he was he was the vice president. He was the of CE, He was the uh, chief um, operations officer, COO. Okay. And uh, so he answered, and he says, "What do you know?" Blah blah blah. And I said, "I know this, this, and this." And he goes, "Well." you could come up for an interview and not fly me up or nothing like that. Like, so right. I said, all right. So I came home to my wife and I said, why don't we uh, book a flight to uh, fly up and do this interview up in like Tigard. I couldn't yeah. even say it right, you know, Oregon. <laughs> and uh, so she's like, I'm down for that. And so I almost took a job going back into the cell phone repair business in Tennessee at that time. I was kind of, oh, wow. cause I was trying to find okay. a place to, you know, affordable that I could raise my family and uh, level three, you know, run a service center, exactly what I was doing at the LA Rock, but in Tennessee. Okay. Um, and I was like, oh, I interviewed with them. I got the job, actually. Um, but I was holding out for this interview with Flynn. So I had flown up to um, uh, Portland and uh, got a rental car and stayed uh, in Beaverton. And then I we um, went to the interview and it went really good. I interviewed with Robert Flynn, I interviewed with Michael Rosa. And then uh, okay. Rosa was funny. He had my resume on the table, and he just kind of flicked it aside and goes, so what do you know? Like, he didn't even look <laughs> at my resume. That's so it was classic. Classic, know. Michael. Uh -huh. And so I, I just, um, you know, I, I it did good enough, and I was able to get the job. And so I came home, you know, gave my landlord a month's notice and told my family we're packing a U-Haul and moving me and my little family up. I have a tight family down there. And they're like, you're what, you know, <laughs> with my you right. know, one year old son. And, uh, but we couldn't afford down there. And so, oh, yeah. so we ended up getting a really cool little condo to rent up in uh, Beaverton. Um, I moved up a month later and started at Selectron. And that, again, the analog tra transition of analog uh, CCTV to IP, right? That was the time when what a beautiful everything was going was. to <laughs> IP based systems. And I always laugh at that, you know, all these little conversions in my life. I'm like, here I am again, you know, ripping out all this coax and we're putting yeah. in Cat 6 <laughs> and spinning up NVRs, not DVRs and blah, blah, blah. So uh, that was cool. I got to do that with Mr. Uh, with Selectron. I met Steve that I remember Steve Runkle and I, first time I met him, he was walking down the hallway or he came out of the warehouse. I was going into the warehouse and he goes, hey, you're the new guy, huh? I go, yeah. He goes, where are you from? I go, uh, Huntington Beach, California. And he goes, Tito Ortiz is from there. I go, yeah. Huntington <laughs> Beach, bad <laughs> <That's> boy. Awesome. <laughs> so he goes, yeah, I don't like Tito Ortiz. And he bails it. I'm like, yeah, I don't, yeah, I like Chuck Liddell or whatever. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so we kind of passed each other and that was that. But I remember thinking, Steve, man, this guy really thinks he knows his shit. Man, he's cocky. I remember thinking to myself, he is really, really, you know, no, yeah, he better be as good as he acts. Right. Yeah. But he does. And he was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That was what's cool. So long story short on that, dude, is we, um, Selectron was really awesome to work at. I don't like Tito. So fun. And then after that, we uh, got bought out by ASG. 
Right. And now I'm a startup engineer. That's what they called us when. So when I got hired in with Selectron, slash, uh, they used, uh, Flynn called us startup engineers. That's when the term engineer started getting used. Okay. I don't like using that term uh, lightly unless you have an engineering degree. And yeah, uh, <clears throat> you know that's kind of you don't want to do that. But um, and then of course Aronson Security Group bought Selectron, and. Uh, the big plan, I remember Robert said, uh, it was me, Brad Kenyon, and Donning. And so Donning and Brad Kenyon still had their LEAs and their ELO6s, which are their licensing right. for Oregon and Washington. So they still maintain their limited energy electrical licenses, but they had moved into being programmers, right? Or, you know, uh, startup engineers is what they call this. But they still had their licenses. So when I had come up in California when I was doing it, you didn't have to have a license. So you, you I could come don't. up. Right, and so you, and that's why it's easy to hire people down there. Right, but and pay them way less. Yeah, and the, yeah, you're right. And, and I, I, real quick. Yeah. Remember when, um, <clears throat> you know, we were getting bought by ADT. Yeah. And they were buying that other uh, company down in the Bay Oakland. Area. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we had to go down Acme. Um, Acme. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. And we had to go down there. I think I was a third, maybe fourth term apprentice. And there was a guy there about your age. He was running the job. Oh, wow. And I made more money than he did. Oh, geez. In Oakland, the Bay Area is so expensive. Yeah, right. Yeah. I think those guys were driving like an hour and a half into oh, work. Easy. Yeah. Again, like third or fourth term apprentice. Mm-hmm. I was like, Whew. Dude, they spend two, three, four hours on the road. You know, it's crazy. That's nuts. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> well, no, it's not in. right. You know, um, those guys, they work their butts off and they do good work because the oh, guys yeah. that I worked with in California were good. Um, a lot of them had side businesses they're running because they, you're right, they weren't to. making money. Um, but, uh, you know, one of the things in California, though, was I was able to do things. And so when I came here, uh, I, you couldn't even hold a screwdriver unless you had your license. Yeah. And yeah. that which shocked is, me. Which is good. It is good. and uh, But I didn't get all that yet. And one of the things that Robert Flynn, I said, oh, man, should I join The Apprentice? I, I'm worried, you know. He goes, no, I hired you as a startup engineer. And he goes, pretty soon there'll be uh, lots of you. And I'm like, oh, wow. So oh. he already at that time had the vision. Of he was such an innovator. Yeah. And, and, in fact, I remember him calling it out exactly. He goes, I picture six to eight application engineers in about five years. He told me that. And, and wow. application engineers were our new name. So we went from startup engineer, Aronson Security bought us, and then they called us application engineers. Right. And then everything was getting so IT-centric on the back end, you know, because when everything started becoming network-based, well, now you're, you know, you got IP addresses, you got the customer's network, you got isolated network, you got bandwidth constraints, you got, um, you know, um, and the servers and the storage of the servers and bad hard drives and fixing servers and all that crap. Um, that came out of going IP-based systems. And then, of course, the back end started getting, you know, the bigger the systems, the gnarlier they were getting. Uh, SQL Server, we were going from MSDE to SQL Server Express. And, you know, you're transferring from XP to um, Windows uh, 7 and then from Windows 7 to Windows 10. And then there was so much happening in that short period of time, Windows 2000 to Windows 2003 to Windows 2008 and then, you know, now 2016, 2019. So all of those, and the where where they got the term engineer is because when you would hire for a programmer or, you know, a startup engineer, one of the things people were doing at the time uh, was trying to look for people that had a certificate 
a certificate called the MCSE, okay. a Microsoft Certified Service Engineer. Okay. The MCSE was a pretty hard cert to get. And so if you got a guy that was an MCSE or a gal or, or whatever, they, um, they were pretty valuable, right? So and then I remember, oh, wow, MCSEs, they make good money. And, oh, MCSEs, they know all this stuff. And right. So we were always on the hunt for them, you know. And if you got an MCSE, then they had a strong background in both Windows operating systems, server operating systems, domain controllers, networking, everything. And uh, so you can insert them really quickly into complicated IT-centric environments. And uh, and they just learn the back end, learn the hardware, learn the, the application center the training, and then they, they could become pretty, put it all together. pretty efficient pretty quick. Um, and so we're that's kind of when I saw them moving to the term engineer, like Flynn calling mm. us startup engineers, and then yeah. of course uh, ASG doing a, Aaron, or uh, application engineers. That was coming from the MCSE. It was like Microsoft kind of coined that term. Yeah. They're like, oh, anybody could be an engineer, you know? Yeah. Um, so and now they're not called engineers. No, anymore. integration specialists, which right. is good. Um, I I remember one time a customer said. Uh, in fact, we'll get into the story. You know, one of the big customers that we had. Locally, uh, I think they've sold already. Was Mentor Graphics, and uh, I worked for a really cool guy that uh, Robert Clore, who was one of the uh, smartest guys I ever worked with. Uh, he was our customer, but he really was a mentor. You know, he taught Steve a lot. He taught myself a lot um, about security, not just making everything work, but security. Right. Right. Like, what are you doing for this huge corporation? You know, you're protecting assets. You're protecting people are part of the assets. You know, you're you're approaching security from a, like a uh, a different perspective. You know, it was the actual perspective of a security professional. And that's when it really clicked for me. That's when I was like, oh, this is what I like. This is like, uh, I can put all this together, but I can yeah. design these systems. And why do you want to protect this? And how, how, how much more complicated should the authentication practice become or process become the deeper you get into the organization? Should that really tough security be on the perimeter or should it be on the inside? Are we just going to let anybody into the facility? You know, is it street level? Is it campus type environments or big corporations? You know, all of that. So many become levels. So much cool stuff. And that he taught us so much. I think Steve learned a lot from him. I know I did. Uh, so Robert Clore was wonderful. And uh, he said to me one time, he goes, you know, you're a startup technician. You're not a startup engineer. Right. And I go. I pref- I agree with you. <laughs> I was gonna argue right. with him. He goes, but you know why they call you startup engineers? I go, why that? So they could charge me more money. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, yeah, you're probably right. Um, but then we are at the time I was an application engineer. You know, you're not right. an application engineer. You're an application technician. Um, but I agree with them. So now they call them enterprise integration specialists or integration specialists, which in short, you call somebody an IS person. That that sounds either you're an information right. systems or integration specialist. I like that. It makes more sense, too. I think so, too, because you are doing these integrations and you're tying everything together. Um, so that is pretty cool. But um, so anyways, you know, um, once we kind of I couldn't touch anything, I, he didn't want us to go through the apprenticeship and he really kept us uh, just doing programming and startup and commissioning right. of systems. So you have actual techs, just for background for everyone, Yeah, you have actual techs out there, you know, the, the license holding, you know, low volt electricians, 
they're wiring everything up, installing, and then these and guys certified on the, on the products, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then you guys on the back end are programming yeah. everything. It makes starting it so up. That's why startup and engineering was cool because right, you would come in at the time when you were ready. Let's say as an install tech that you've been on the job freaking months at that point. Right you're ready to start the system up. So we would come in and obviously there's pre-work going on behind the scenes to prep, but you know, to start it up, program it, you know, or in some cases, you know, install the application from scratch, set up the database, everything. And basically you would just um, program all the hardware and the video systems and get it online, commission it, do all the commissioning paperwork, turn it over, train the customer. That's how we did it. And so we would, and then of course service, and we were doing infant protection at the time. So I kind of specialized Brad, Brad yeah. Kenyon, who was my mentor on that. Um, and Stephen Romeo, they really taught me a lot. And uh, I really liked infant protection because yeah. it was a neat thing. And um, you always had complicated doors in hospital environments. You know, you had vertical rods and delayed egress mag locks and sounders and, um, you know, all these uh, card reader integrations and stuff. And then of course you had the, the loud sounds that would go off right. and drive the nurses crazy. Probably but, the uh, babies. And mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, so infant protection it was kind of what I specialized in then for a big, long period after I did the menographic yeah, stint. And, uh, <clears throat> um, but menographic is where we did the 30 countries, and that's where uh, Steve uh, Runkle, who's our GM out of our office, uh, obviously super experienced um and at that time, he was a he was a, like what we call the technical client manager slash project manager slash everything, but for Mentor Graphics. And and so Steve was amazing because, as a startup engineer at the time, or application engineer, um, he would pair. You know, he would do all. You know, he would sell the system, in all these different countries, design it, sell it, um, estimate it, right? Right. Sell it, and then um, worked with Robert Clore on the design and the methodology and what we're doing all around the world. And then I would get it and basically as a package, and he would give me a Manila folder, and in that would be the drawings <laughs> with the panel schematics, which the panel schematics were everything. Right. And uh, which was basically the can, all the boards in the can, and point to points. Right, because like you said, <clears throat> all over the world, dude, you might not know their language or what mm-hmm. they're talking about but you can but, read a schematic but you can read colors yeah <laughs> you <laughs> most can people screenshot and really point sorry. an arrow to that yeah. input <laughs> sorry colorblind people but i am one actually are I've you gotten by i'm red green man and i've gotten red by green. all my life uh in That's electronics and networking one in our industry it is to... so hard dude um i actually once i could see the colors you see mm-hmm. So if I walk up and you say, okay, that's red, that's green, that's orange. Once I see that and you tell me what they are, mm-hmm. I will always see it. So have you gotten used to it at this point? Well, usually what I'll do is I'll ask, like, let's say, you know, all cable's different and the mm-hmm. color shades are a little different. So when you open a sheath of cable and let's say 22-8 or something, you spread them all out and or back in the day, like Cat 6 or whatever, you, you spread them all out, but not all of them were the same. Some of the colors were really e- easy to see Especially, I mean, I was dealing with the, back in the DSL days, 50 pair, 100 oh, pair, 200 pair, you know, like white slate. I did not know slate. you were colorblind. <laughs> oh, dude, it's crazy. It, it's been so hard. That's why I did well in application engineering. But I've been right. working in electronics my whole life. Yeah. Resistors, resistor I mean, were, values. Yeah, I was were. having to do classification of resistor values. Wow. And having to look at the chart. But again, I could see the colors. It's just in right. your brain. So as long as like that purple is purple 
and you see purple and you tell me that's purple from that point forward i'll see that hue that color and that will be purple to me right if a different hue comes in it could still be purple but i won't know it's purple right so i need to so i might say hey is this purple and uh they'll be like uh that one is magenta <laughs> or whatever and i'll be like ah gotcha and so uh, it, yeah, so I was really glad when I, things became more IT because then I started getting further. Although switching LEDs are always a pain in the ass, right. you know, uh, seeing the LED <laughs> colors. Um, right. But um, but I, I, I always dealt with it. I, again, I could see the colors. I just, I need to, if you have three LED hues coming up, and I know what, what creates the color and the voltage level, right? And so I, like, I understand everything about it. It's just, okay, which one is green? that one's green okay which one is red that one's red okay which one's orange that one's orange okay cool i will always see that on those readers you know so um so it's like you're not colorblind anymore after that you know right so then you could go and be on the phone i'm you know it's orange okay now it just flipped to red or whatever so you know you can see the color some not everybody you know that's just my personal colorblindness but um so yeah Mm -hmm. colorblind uh, was a bummer but the you know as you um you know, with with all the the worldwide work that Steve was doing at the time, having schematics was uh, absolutely critical because we, like I, I was telling you, you know, when we would do deployments, we partnered with this company called MTS out of yeah. Dublin, Ireland, <clears throat> and that that was the coolest thing ever because that right, right. man, that guy was our boots on the ground. He would fly out of Dublin to pretty much all of Europe. That's crazy, mm-hmm. and it was cool. So I could be in. I was always working in the night. You know. So I would uh, usually start work at like 8 p.m. And okay. then, uh, and I'd get set up in my house and uh, I would have my laptop and I would have network access and then I would log in via VPN to the servers. And then I would have pre-programmed everything for the site and we would have a segment, you know, Stockholm. And then let's say Stockholm has 30 readers. I programmed the panel, the 30 readers, any local I.O. that needed to be done, input, right. output stuff, and basically to the schematic, to the T, right? Exactly. And then and then that person on site, usually like if we had a mediator there, would yeah. be like uh, um, Stuart at the time was that really thick Irish accent. Yeah. Uh, man, it was so hard to hear, understand him. <laughs> But Especially he was at so first, cool, I'm though. Sure. Yeah, but he was a he was an application engineer, so okay. was, he was going. He knew exactly what I was doing. We were always on the same page. He was my eyes and ears, and I, I think I was telling you, like, like for me, the job came alive when it had video and I lit up all the cameras, right? Because now I could see everything. I remember the first time I saw Stuart for the first time. I'd worked with him all these times, you know, and all of a sudden, Stuart, that's what you look like, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he was, uh, oh, hi, Michael. Really short, <laughs> red beard. I'm, no. just <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, he was a cool cat, but he was out there, man. He was so good, and he would QC everything for us. He'd keep the techs, whoever the techs were at the time, you know, right. uh, uh, up to our standards and making sure things were labeled, making sure the panels were clean and everything. Cause, international foreman. Yeah, and an international foreman, exactly. And That's he really was cool worth title. every penny. Um, man, it was so cool having him. And he, he was such a world traveler. He would just go anywhere, and uh, I would be from my – I'd connect with him. All right, Michael, I'm on site right now. This is what we have. We're still waiting on three readers, so we're about this far into the project. We could probably start lighting up some cameras right now. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, I've got that camera. Boom, starting this one up. Okay, I got these cameras online looking good. All right, can you focus this one? Focusing, right, in oh, field of views. Yeah, back then there were you no, know, little manuals, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, and so, 
yeah, those were yeah. getting phased out as yeah. I was be, I, when I got into it in two, uh, 2016. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Autofocus was the coolest thing ever. Yeah, yeah, 2017 <laughs> was awesome. <laughs> yeah. We had, we, when focusing in field of view, when we didn't have Stuart, right? right. We had those language barriers. You know, how do you explain a little to the left, a little to the right, you know, right. to somebody who doesn't speak the same language? What I learned was in the U.S., we're terrible. We do not speak other languages. No. We're not raised that. I mean, maybe you learn Spanish a little bit in high school if you're lucky or grade school or whatever. But you don't or remember it by the time you're 30 yeah. years old Man, or 25. Man, I worked with so many countries where English was, like, mandatory. You know, they, wow. they like, had to learn it. So they had their language, right, whatever it was, and uh, they spoke some English. And it was like many countries were like that. And so they could get by. We could, but, you know, the weirdest thing is that the concept of a door forced open. Yeah. Didn't Matt? But, you know, I was thinking about it more in detail after we talked the other day. It was because there were so many maglocks. Everything were maglocks. And I just don't right. think forced opens were common because they were maglocks. Right. You know, people weren't prying the maglock open. Get into that a little bit because it's actually really funny. Yeah. Funny kind of deal. Oh, man. Um, so one of the things like in India, Israel, or all over – uh, you would have these high rises and it would be like a tech center. Right. And you'd have whatever, you know, the perimeter doors and stuff and so on. Be big, beautiful glass doors, marble everywhere. Not an easy place to work and right. run cable. Right. You know, so these, the techs were good. And, um, you know, so, and that was the other thing, you know, seeing in all those different countries, because like what you do, right? But in a different country. Right. How do they do it? Do they use a cart? You know, what are their tools like? What, how, what's their style, you know? And because uh, uh, everyone kind of has their own style, right? But oh yeah. But long story short, the with the maglocks, right? Was um, I I was you know eventually because everything was also locally powered, you right? Know? Like so you didn't have some of it was some sites do you didn't like wasn't home run to a power supply that was sending power out to the maglock where you know it was like that. Usually there was a supply above the door, the maglock itself. Right. We were sending a trigger. Um, or uh, we're um, interrupting, putting a relay out in the field. We have them. They would actually fashion the relay and build the relay out in the field, like right. an deck and route everything through. But uh, I would and just, just send like them the dry the contact circuit, trigger, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and uh, basically remove power from the maglock. So it wasn't that easy to be like, oh, just power it down and give me a forced open, right? You know. So if you're going to commission the door, you're going to do a card read. You're going to okay. The granted no entry is what we would do. Do right. a granted access, open the door, go in. And this would be over the phone. That's how I commissioned with them. And then they would go in, okay, do a Rex exit from three different directions. Okay, good. No alarms. Right. All right. Um, uh, give me a forced open. So, you know, strike door, you could put a piece of whatever to block it from latching and then sneak the door open and give you a forced open or whatever. It's way right? easier on an electrified handle. <laughs> yeah. And, but uh, the, the maglocks weren't that easy unless you powered them down. Right. And they, it wasn't that easy to power them down. So I'd be like, just power them down. They're like, uh, we have to get through, you know, all this stuff to power it down. I'm like, oh man. So, but they would just be like, why do you want a forced open? I'll give you a held open that I can do. Right. Right. And, and so I say, okay. You know, and I'd shorten the timer so I'd get it. Okay, cool. I got the held open. So the door contacts working. Granted, no entry was a good one. Right. Uh, that's why I would say grant access, but don't enter. Because if I got a grant and no entry, then I knew we're that far along. Like the door contact was good. Right. Um, and then uh, granted access, door open, perfect, door closed. And then um, we would do forced open, but just 
that was so hard to get across and they why why you know um i go because you know why do you monitor door forest opens we want to know if somebody broke in you know that sends mm-hmm. an alarm to our security yeah. operations center but why why are you worried about that people don't break in here <laughs> i'm like oh this is in the <laughs> states they do you know man they would steal something out of there i was like man but they were like no that's not happening here you know you steal something here you're in big trouble yeah right <laughs> but uh pakistan we did work in pakistan and um you know uh, lahore was the uh so the guy was going from or Islamabad to Lahore, there's this big, long highway, straight right. type highway. Two lane, right? Two lane deal, kind of like, you know, middle of Nevada or something, just the desert type deal, real wide open. And and the guy, I was waiting forever for him to call me. And I was like, man, hey, when are you going to get there type thing? And um, he came back, sorry, you know, you guys crashed a drone en route. And this is... <laughs> I just was so shocked by that. I was like, you crashed guys, like you guys, right? Because right. I'm an American. And he's like, you guys crashed a drone. And when you crash a drone, uh, uh, crash a drone anywhere around here, it like cordons off, you know, a huge, wow. like people go full on mission, right? To prevent trade secrets and right. people to take our technology. It was a pretty extensive effort to, um, you know, to uh, re, uh, to get all the crash stuff. You know, the crash so site became a right. pretty big deal. So they would cordon everything off. I thought for a minute there, like, he's like, well, I can't do anything. The drone carrying all the readers just crashed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nowadays it'd be like, oh, we're dropping off your readers. Right. Um, Where's the Rexes? Oh, yeah. 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's how it's going to be. Jeez, man. Nowadays. Um but that that but the way he said you guys and I'm, I'm like right. you know that was funny. Uh, I said wow, she's man, that's crazy, you know. Um, but uh, all around the world, like uh, one of the coolest things that I remember Shenzhen, China, and Beijing. So I don't know what the distance is between the two, but there's a train you could take between the two. At least that's what I remember. And I was doing a we were commissioning a site. I want to say it was the new site was in Shenzhen. Okay. The old site they were moving out of was Beijing. I could be wrong because my memory, I can't remember, but I, I just, it was China and it was moving from one, one office location to this office location. Hey Tyler, can we get a, can we get a time distance on that? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. I'm curious actually. That's I would, my Joe I Rogan know. moment. Um, Terry. I would use my phone on that. I'm curious to remember because I, I want to say it was Beijing to Shenzhen and then, so long story short though, the, the guy was in there. We did a move, right? So they right. moved from one building to the new building, but we sold the wrong readers. So we had oh. installed everything, right? Trying, we had to go live that night. It had to be done, and nothing was working, and everyone's freaking out. And there was a language barrier, and I couldn't like a couldn't, huge language barrier. Yeah, we were using a translator app, and so I was going back and forth with this guy on translator app. I'm like, what the heck is wrong? Nothing's reading, and I started to catch on. Uh, at the time, Runkle wasn't the guy anymore. It was this right. guy, uh, Michael. Uh, Kennedy at the time, I think, who was managing the account, and he had placed a reader order, and uh, for whatever reason, it just ended up being the wrong part number. Right. And uh, that was shipped to them, and uh, they installed them, right? So they're like, you sent the reader, right? <laughs> so it's your right. problem, right? right? And I'm like, well, yeah, it, it is, and You're... I'm looking at the part number, and I'm trying to do all these, like, is this right? Is what's I started to catch on, right? And I finally like, oh, shoot this is the wrong reader yeah. and we're not going to go live tonight and yeah you can't customer, one night ship to beijing right and, to... and the customer it was probably three in the morning at this point 
and the customer was a pretty tough at this time Robert Clore had moved on and uh, Michael Andrews was the new security director is really really good guy and uh, but he was tough and and he, you know he, it had to be done that night yeah. and um, so in the meeting when he woke up at six that site better be online and I was trying wow. really hard to get it online it was 3 a.m. and the guy I was as the, there was one of the so the way when they would spin up a new office it actually send somebody from the states you know working with the employees because they would have to get the network up for the employees and their client machines to talk right. back to the states right where our servers were so there was somebody there and I remember you know kind of lay out talking through that guy and the staff and I remember thinking well you just moved from a site how far away is it can we rip the re readers out of that site and we can at least protect the perimeter and the guy goes that's a great idea. Let's do it. And boom, somebody got on a train, whipped all the, you know, cut all the readers out that he could, interior readers, and then shot back down. I don't know if it was some bullet train or something, but next thing you know, you know, before 6 a.m., we had the perimeter secure. Michael, wow. Michael, I had called Michael Andrews at like 3 in the morning, though, just to let him know, hey, FYI, it might not be good. You know, we're, we have this last-ditch effort right. to rip out readers at this other place. And wow. Hopefully it comes online. Dude, that guy has... That guy had to have been moving through Dude, that building, just saying. screw, yeah, cut, exactly, screw, cut, seriously. And uh, I don't remember how many readers we needed to secure the perimeter, but it was like probably five or six. Um, so it wasn't like no small task. And then of course wire them up. Um, <clears throat> so, anyways, that that was a pretty big deal because that I remember uh, that next day we got uh, we used to get awards, you know, for customer service and stuff. Uh, it was right. named after Michael Bradbury, right? And uh, he was a legend at Selectron and and uh, was a mentor to Steve, our GM. And uh, um, so you, I remember you'd get a Bra Michael Bradbury award, right. which was the elite award you could get in the company. And, and it, it felt amazing because knowing who he was you remember those and everything. Days. <laughs> and, oh yeah. You yeah. got a Bradbury award in your Monday meeting. That was a good day. Right. Um, and that one was a pretty well-earned one. I remember afterwards thinking, man, yeah, thanks. Yeah, no kidding. But Michael Andrews called and, and he was real explicit and he wrote a really nice email saying, hey, thanks for not giving up and just thinking outside the box. And you know, to the team out there and leading the team and making every making it so we could protect our perimeter. It was huge. Right. And then we were able to get the right readers out there and then eventually finish the job. But uh, so working over. But see, that's the thing that's so weird to me is is you can do that stuff thousands of miles away. Language differences, but you can't do it here sometimes. <laughs> you know Isn't what I mean? You can have truth, a job yeah. that's 30 miles yeah. away and have that. And that's a big disaster. We're sorry we can't do it. And I can't get you readers. And right. we don't have readers to pull from. And we have to, you know what I mean? Next thing you know, they can't even start that up. And we got lucky because of the old building. You know right. what I mean? Otherwise, yeah. we've been, you know, out of luck. And that's why I called him at 3 in the morning. I remember he was not happy about the call. And he was, oh, hello. No, I'm, no, he was happy. I called him, of course. That, right, That's right. something he needed to know. But I just said, you know, if this is, this plan doesn't work, it's not happening. Yeah. Um, but he, uh, so uh, all those years doing work overseas, this is my favorite time. It was such a cool time. And I liked uh I really liked seeing, like, when we spun up those cameras. I remember in, in Bangalore or Noida, India, um, just seeing the people and, you know, they, or Pakistan, you know, they, they just, right. they, they had, I've heard, I don't know what it's called, but it, it's like, you know, it was so hot and they would have these uh, full, like, body type, um, 
like kind of loose clothing. God, I am really I sorry if this isn't true. Are they called burkas, Tyler? The I think that's yeah. right. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so they would wear a burqa and then the, but they would have a cart, you know, how you guys have your cart with a right. ladder on it and right. and the you know, you, you always put those little hooks on the end to put your ladder on there and you have your tools and everything on there. Right. I just remember that camera turned on, he was in his burqa and he had his <laughs> it's like that's cool. You know, that <laughs> uh, was really neat. Right. Um yeah, so it was like a like something similar mm. to that. It was like this full clothing and they um Okay, maybe the burqa's the yeah. female version? No, there's it's for the guys, I forget. Maybe. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think that's right. I wonder if that is. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's it's hard to, to track because um I just you know, and that's a, again another thing where, you know, you you really are not you know, it's it, the becoming worldly in some way, shape, or form. Like in the military, people will travel all around the world right, and see so right. much. And unless you're lucky enough to, there you go. That's it right there. <laughs> okay. Yeah, a kurta. Interesting. So it'd be like a kurta, but it would be full body, and right, uh, right. They, they wouldn't have the the pants. And uh, I just remember thinking that that was interesting because you know we're so used to dickies or Carhartts right, and stuff like right. that, and. Uh, and steel toe boots and yeah. construction PPE and everything like that, and it wasn't that case. That's so funny. Yeah. It's it's kind of cool. It is. Funny. It was really neat. Um, but was trippy was I, he came up with that outfit on, and then he had right. his cart, and then all behind was beautiful marble, like you know, it was like super high end building. I was like, man, right. big glass. So no doors. uniforms. Like they weren't no. like blue colored like ours. Mm, no logos on the chest. Nope. And. Uh, and I do, I think it that would have been Noida, I believe, or Hyderabad. And mm-hmm. then I think Bangalore, we were doing a site where um, we spun up a, a system there. But when the light, when, or the, when the camera turned on, the in the image was the ladder that he was using. Uh-huh. And the ladder was actually made out of logs, you know, like wow. fashioned, you know, That's and so tied sweet. with uh, some type of leather or something. And, and it was an A-frame, but it was a tree, you know, and it was branches. Right. So and did it so fold at all? It was a folding A-frame. No kidding. Yeah. It it was, and I took a screenshot of it. I was like, no way. That is You know, because in the States you have OSHA and everything else. I'm right. just like, man, nobody will believe me if I tell them. This. You know, you're, you're not even allowed to use wood ladders anymore. Yeah. You, wood Which ladders. Funny. You know, real wood ladders. But right. But like yeah. made out of a tree. Legit. You know, like. That's this, so sweet. That was um, unbelievable. I wonder what the weight requirement on that was. Yeah, I wonder <laughs> what kind of wood it was. I wonder because it was a legit A-frame. The guy was using it and uh, focusing the camera off it. Wow. Mm-hmm. I couldn't believe it. That had to have been such a cool like, was thing to neat. witness. You know? It was. I couldn't believe it because, again, and we're so safety you know, specific here. Right. Uh, and uh, so anyways, uh, it, it worked. It lifespan on leather. Yeah. You know. It was It was something else. And they uh, – but, man, he – put the camera in it looked clean everything was labeled and uh that wow. got the image right and it worked and everything was cool um that's incredible yeah but uh i remember in shannon ireland we had a site that was always getting hit with really high winds and it would vibrate these doors and we would get all these false door forced open events and robert clore at the time said man every time that happens you know securitas kind of all around the world and they had securitas officers oh, there do they really yeah and they would to respond, the poor officer had to drive this uh, security officer had to drive this long distance, 
to get to the Shannon Ireland site, I remember, or something like that. So when they would get a forced open and they would be concerned somebody was breaking into the facility, obviously they would, you know, drive out there. Right. And um, anyways, to deal with the issue, it took us a while to figure it out. The techs would go, and hey, everything's right, you know, and what's wrong? And uh, I convinced him to put a camera there because that's the only, you know, way to do it. And so yeah. at, the, at some point, Access made, the, we used to call them soda pop, cameras they were just really small <clears throat> little cameras but they were kind of deep and so they look kind of like a soda can okay and uh you could put those cheap though and you can point them at the door and that's all it was so you know just to put it right here look at that door and that was it and so we tested one there and uh sure enough the door would go like this you could see it move and it was just you'd look the the weather reports and stuff and see it was like getting hit with just wind and uh so it's vibrate enough to cause a forest i guess and so that was good to have. And so then that kind of lit a light bulb in his head. He's like, man, that's going to save me a lot of money on rolling. Oh, yeah. I was officers. going to say that had to have paid for itself. Yeah. Really fast. Over and over again. So he put them all around. In fact, uh, at the time, Steve was the client manager and he was thought, yeah, this works great. And he was do it everywhere. They're like 300 yeah. bucks a pop. Just it's going to save me so much money to, you know, just the truck roll alone was 300 bucks. So that wasn't a maglock door then. It was probably that was a legit regular handset. Okay. Um, yeah, that was in handset Ireland. Or strike. Ireland uh, is kind of similar to here. You know, the office buildings. Uh, um, a lot of the a lot of Europe was very similar to here. India was a lot of map, pretty much all maglocks. Pakistan was maglocks. That okay. I remember doing and push to exits. So you would have a push to exit. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And that would drop the power, and that's how you get. So your wrecks, and so that was the other thing. I'd be like, okay, on my prints, it shows a Rex, not a push to exit, right? Right. And I'd be like, all right, so the Rex, that was their Rex input. I activate strike on Rex was a check mark I'd set in, right. in for that particular reader in Linnell. And of course, it would unlock and, you know, whatever. So I would say, let's test, you know, let's do a Rex exit. A push to exit? Rex exit. Yeah. I mean, wait a second. What? <laughs> you know, push to <laughs> right. exit. You know, right. We don't have a motion Rex, you know, and I'm like looking through the parts. Like, yeah, we don't have any GS-160s or motion Rexes in the job. What do we have there? And uh, I would always be so interested to see, like, send me a picture of what's going on out there because I have no idea. And then they would send it, you know, just push to exit, boom, like a paddle, yeah. and then it would unlock the door. That's they how they all exit. They still have that in a lot of buildings in downtown Portland, actually. Oh, really? Wow. Oh, yeah. Yeah, um, there, that was kind of a mat. That was just like the norm. <clears throat> but they had about interior office doors and everything, you know, had maglocks, it seemed. But, um, you know, actually, that kind of makes a lot of sense, you know, because, like, you know, if it's busy, people walking in and out, and they're doing, like, primarily maglocks, yeah. unlock on Rex, that door will be constantly unlocking. So, yeah, they had to use a push button. Yeah, that makes Rex. sense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, totally. Super secure. Yeah, otherwise, be like, Click, 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 click all the yeah. time. Yeah, because they would do those big glass doors had these sheer locks that were oh, loud, yeah. man. I hear it be on the phone. That'd be a shagunk. And, uh, you know, so, uh, but, man, it was so cool doing all that work. And Steve just always set me up for success, man. Yeah. That's when I saw a project manager really manage project. He managed all those global projects just perfectly. I mean, he gave me, set me up to succeed every time. And so now as a project manager, I've been a project manager. I became a technical client project manager or technical project manager uh, when I was doing a lot of the Wi-Fi based infant protection systems, you know, 2016, 2017. Right. Uh, right before we sold to ADT. 
and uh, and I knew that really well. So for me, it was comfortable. You know, like I could manage the jobs. You know, I, I knew it very good. Right. Um, and uh, and it was you know like I, I felt comfortable there, so I could do those jobs. Um, and then big upgrades, big software upgrades. You know, enterprise upgrades. I started doing those things and um, did a big one where we like for software house where we went from 800 to 9,000 enterprise and the, oh you know, wow and did these high availability um, fault tolerant servers and, and this other product and I was things are you know so when they hired or ASG at the time needed project managers that knew that stuff right you know not project managers that knew the electrical side so much or even knew enough you know just to do you know full on deployments and big huge deployments but when you did software upgrade you had all these risks that if you just oh, willy-nilly yeah. it you would be not that they will would do that it was just they didn't understand the kind of IP planning efforts that needed to take place there's there's so much more into it than hey the concrete's up yeah you know they're halfway done with drywall head in there and start you know cutting holes and dry when they already have like you know, however many employees, yeah. 100 to like 2,000, and you're doing time these do huge upgrades, yeah. man. And they're 24-7 facilities or not, and universities, right. hospitals. We, You guys weren't getting COVID breaks at that point where you're like, oh, nobody's there. Okay, we get no. to take our time. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Um, it would be, you would have to plan the heck out of it. And right. So planning was my favorite thing to do. We would do project plans, not your project plan that you would have in the PMP, but um, like just a plan, right? An executive summary of what we're going to do, how we're going to do it, all the tasks we're going to take, all the risks that can happen, what our requirements are, uh, all the prerequisites, working with the IT department, make sure you're, you all your stuff's lined out. And then you execute the upgrade and, you know, you have an outage window and you got to pull it off and then you have a backup plan and all this stuff. And if it fails and you tank and you need to do a backup restore, what if the backup's not good? I've had that happen before. No kidding. Yeah, man. Um, matter of fact, uh, we were doing a university, and this was actually, uh, luckily, I found this out before the upgrade. So we were planning a huge upgrade for this university. Right. And uh, so the upgrade was probably two, three weeks away. Well, one of the people that worked for the university and managed the access control system was new to Linnell, and they saw the multiple oh. selection box and on the readers and you know how multiple selection works in Linnell for example is you have all these readers let's say thousand plus readers in the system right and you do a select all because you wanted to modify all the readers so he did a select all so every check marks on every you know probably at that that site at the time now they're probably uh, over a thousand readers at the time, I think there were right. seven hundred sixty readers. That's, so that's still so many readers. So yeah, seven hundred sixty readers. All of them were checked, and and then you have the multiple selection checkbox there. But the problem is the modify record you do is it's going to take the settings on that reader and copy them to all other readers, right? So your strike time, your hold time, uh, your everything, right? It will take that form that you did that that you modified, and it will duplicate that multiple selection on every single thing you select. So he did a select all, did multiple selection, and he that just so happened to be when he went to add the card format. That's why he was doing this. He was adding a new card format, and he thought the easiest way to do 700 readers would be to use multiple selection and add the card format. But when he did that, the reader he was on 
was a vehicle gate reader that had a specific strike time, oh, pulse time for the unlock. Man. And every reader in the system inherited that setting. And all hell broke loose. Which was time. probably what? A now, like split second drive? It was drive. a one second so fire. So you'd read your card, but the reader was second. here. It fired the lock real quick, but then the lock wouldn't open. Right. And then activate strike on Rex got undone. So all the doors that, let's say, had activate strike on Rex so you could exit properly, you were right. locked in. We had students locked into certain areas they couldn't get out. Uh, they're literally going to break windows. Um, one person, like when we, before we fixed it, literally had a printer right. in their hand. who's was going to throw through the window. <laughs> uh, so we had a lot, of, man, dude. I oh got a call, and it, it was just hell broke loose. Right? They're like, "Oh my god, you know this happened because during the day." And, and all he was trying a, to do was add a yeah. card format. And too. of course, it wasn't a typical like forty right, reader silicon. building. Seven no, dude, seven hundred readers. readers. So of course, the natural idea would be, okay, when did this happen? I had to uncover what happened first. Finally, the guy told me what he did. I was like, oh, jeez. And then I said, what reader did you start on? This reader. Oh, that's why everything has a one second pulse. And so I'm like, man, this is insane, right? How am I going to fix this? Oh, well you guys do backups every night so we'll just take a backup you'll lose whatever happened between last night's backup right and right now but i need your it people it's right now a very easy price to pay right <laughs> dude the backup file was corrupt so we were totally totally screwed and then they figured out at that point well why is the backup file corrupt right so then they went back to older backups couldn't restore those so IT's freaking out, everyone's freaking out. And then I found a reader that I did like a process of elimination or basically kind of deducted. What's the most common reader here? Right. Right. And then, oh man, dude, I just picked one that was the most generic, like proper setting and did a multiple select and applied that. That fixed 80% of them. Right. And then I had to go find the vehicle gates, I had to find the Matlock doors, had to do the activate strike on Rex's. Had to be what, 50, 60 hours of work? Oh, easy. It was just so insane. And no good backups. And so I worked with the IT department to find out why they they had recently migrated their servers and the SQL Server guy, uh, their database administrator, uh, I was asking them, originally I had it set to backup and overwrite, not do an amend. And so he thought it was better to do an amend. So he changed the backup type it was, and it wasn't working. So I man. said, man, the way I know it works is to do it like this. Right. And so we did it that, that way. But it was great to learn that before I did the upgrade. Oh, yeah, Right, 100%. Because if the upgrade tanked and I went to go try to grab a backup, oh, then right. I would have totally been screwed. So that was kind of a blessing. But, man, it was so nuts to rebuild all that. Um, <laughs> so man well yeah. honestly what a great story to end this on cool yeah it was fun to be able to talk to you and tell you all these stories we always go around the office and i tell it little stories but yeah i was like man we gotta we get spend Mike a lot of time <laughs> so much experience <laughs> he'll talk the whole time <laughs> no it's perfect you know they hear us talk every week so cool. no it, it's awesome yeah, man. thanks for having me would man. you believe that it was an hour and 20 minutes no way yeah jeez i can talk Man. Hey, it's been great. Jeez, it still looks sure, light out there. Yeah. I thought we were good to go. Well, uh, thank you so much for having me. I was Absolutely. No, it was it. a pleasure. All right. Thanks, guys. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening to the Half Watt Podcast. We always want to hear from you, and we encourage you to email us at halfwattpod at gmail.com with questions or even your own stories. Funny, crazy, or praiseworthy, we want to hear it all. You can follow us on Instagram at halfwattpod to stay up to date on our feed. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And share us with a friend, the best way to help us grow. The Half Watt Podcast is a production of Now Hear This Studios.